Well, good morning, Highland Community Church. It is good to be with you today. If you will have your Bible, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll get there in just a moment. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Dan Shields. I'm one of the pastors at the Merrill campus, and I primarily serve with our student ministry as well as our worship ministry. And it's just really good to be together today to worship. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray, as we dive into God's word? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your inspired and inerrant word. Father, thank you for giving us just the gift of your church, that we can learn together, that we can grow together, that we can all as one body take another step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we open up your word now, may you guide all of our hearts together to learn, to grow, and to more deeply love you with our hearts, our minds, as well as our actions in our lives. Father, would you guide us? May we worship you well this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to be talking about spiritual gifts. We've been talking about spiritual gifts in our series in 1 Corinthians over the past several weeks, and we'll continue that conversation today. And spiritual gifts are given by God to Christ's followers for the purposes of bringing glory and honor to the Lord while also being given to build up and to edify the local church. Spiritual gifts are not for the purpose of building ourselves up. They're not meant for the purpose of building myself up, but actually they are supposed to be used in God-serving ways for building up our brothers and our sisters in Christ. We see spiritual gifts found in several different passages in God's word. We see them in Romans chapter 12. We see them in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and chapter 12 and 14. We see them also in Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Peter 4. And within all of these verses, we also see several different types of spiritual gifts. Here are a few of them. There's the gifts of service and helps, evangelism, giving, discernment, wisdom, knowledge, leadership, administration, teaching, shepherding, exhortation, hospitality, mercy, faith, healings, prophecy, tongues, and interpretations. God has been so gracious with all of these different gifts that he gives to believers. And while all of us have natural talents, all of us have natural skills as human beings, but when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior, God gives us additional giftings and he expands our existing talents by his empowerment. And these gifts that God gives to Christ's followers are the capacity to minister in certain areas. But these gifts also require practice and hard work to develop them. That's why we see the Apostle Paul telling Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 15 to practice these things. 
Spiritual gifts are the God-given capacity then to advance God's purposes, not my purposes, but the Lord's purposes. And we are supposed to serve in the areas that he has specifically gifted us. And we're supposed to work these things out, practice these things, develop our gifts within the context of the local church. Now, interestingly enough, we have our natural talents, the things that we are naturally good at or that we've worked hard at or by God's common grace, we have these natural talents or maybe through education or practicing different skills in our life. We have those, but those natural talents don't always 100% match up and line up with our spiritual gifts. There's not always a perfect crossover. For example, I think of my mom. My mom is an incredibly wise person. Many people go to her seeking her advice and wise counsel. Over the course of my own life, I've gone to my mom on many occasions trying to just ask her, what should I do in this situation? How should I apply what I know into action in these different scenarios? My mom is an extremely wise person. But when I talked to my mom a few weeks ago about her spiritual gifts, I was actually surprised to learn from her that wisdom is not actually one of her spiritual gifts. She has crafted her wisdom. She has experience and she has raised a family and she's gone through different work experiences and education and she has crafted and worked at and developed the skill of wisdom, but she would say it's not one of her spiritual gifts. Actually, my mom would say that her spiritual gifts, her top two, would be the gift of teaching and the gift of mercy. And so that's why my mom is so effective when she leads her weekly ladies Bible study from her church. And she's able to teach God's word to them and apply it to their daily lives in a way that God is empowering to do that. And every time I talk with the ladies from that study, I always hear high praise about how good of a teacher my mom is. But it's because God has gifted her with that spiritual gift. Or I think of her other gift, her gift of mercy. Whenever I'm going through a difficult time or other people in my mom's life are going through challenging circumstances, my mom is able to hear their story, hear them out, and she's able to sympathize with what they're going through. But not just feel their pain or feel their emotions, but she's ultimately able to point them back to Christ in the midst of that scenario. And she's able to do that because it is one of her God-given gifts. You see, my mom has this skill that she's honed in of wisdom over the years. And it can be used in spiritual context to be sure, but it's not apparently one of my mom's spiritual gifts that God has given her. On the other hand, my mom has these spiritual gifts that she feels that God has given her of teaching and mercy. And it's easily seen how God has empowered her to do those things in different contexts in the local church. And so as we think about my mom's illustration and who my mom is, I mentioned a couple of very non-controversial 
spiritual gifts. The gifts that she has of teaching and of mercy, those are by and large agreed upon in Christian circles. They're non-controversial. But one gift that has proven to be divisive is the spiritual gift of tongues. This gift is mentioned in five different passages in the book of Acts. It's mentioned in several different of Paul's epistles, but most prominently it is mentioned here in our passage today, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And it's interesting that Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the gift of tongues is not a higher gift, but it's actually a lesser, lower gift which is unfortunate because that means for the Corinthian church, they were actually being argumentative and being divided about a gift that is not called a higher gift. And we would think that maybe all the gifts are equal, but the Bible would imply otherwise. The Bible teaches that all gifts are indeed invaluable. They are indispensable. We are the body of Christ. We need each other. If we are going to grow and mature in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we need all of the spiritual gifts that God has given in order to help us to grow and mature in our walks with Jesus. We need all of those in the church to use their spiritual gifts. And yes to all of that, but at the same time, Scripture also calls some spiritual gifts higher gifts And that's why God led Paul to write this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 27 to 31. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles... Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 that we just read lists a sampling of uh, different spiritual gifts, but he lists them in a descending order. And listed last in both of these lists, is the gift of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. And this should tell us and should suggest to us that tongues should not be the front-burning issue when it's talking about division in the church. That should not be the case. When we make tongues an issue, we are out of step with Scripture. It's not even a higher gift, as Paul says. And that's why Paul is kind of frustrated with the Corinthians because they are being divided over something that they should not be divided over. Rather, they should be unified, building each other up. But they've allowed tongues to become a major issue. And so that's why Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that we're going to read now. You can follow along as I read Chapter 14, verses 1 to 19. It says this, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, 
The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If, you're, if your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And then verse 27 and 28. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. And so right away at the beginning of this passage, the text reminds us that love is to be the context in which all of these spiritual gifts are utilized. It says to pursue love. And we should not pursue pride when we use our spiritual gifts. We should not uh, pursue self-serving motivations. It should not be about a power trip, but it should be about pursuing love as we exercise our gifts. And we see that in verses 1 to four. But we can also notice that the text is doing this contrast between two gifts. He's contrasting the gift of prophecy, which we should especially desire, Paul says, with the gift of tongues. But with the gift of tongues, there is not that same encouragement in the text to especially desire it. And so what we're going to do with the rest of our time in God's word is to look at these two spiritual gifts, prophecy and the gift of tongues. So first, let's think about the gift of prophecy. So at times there can be confusion about what 
a prophet is and what the gift of prophecy is because these two things are not the same. There's no reason to believe that we still have prophets in the sense of a Moses or an Elijah or an Elisha. And that's why I would never refer to myself as prophet Dan. That's just never going to happen because I would hold to the view that the office of apostle and the office of prophet, that that ended around the beginning of the second century AD. But many New Testament scholars define the gift of prophecy as different than how we would define the role of a prophet. And so the gift of prophecy is it's not just about predicting the future. It's not, it's not about that. Rather, it's about speaking biblical truths to one's present culture. That's what the gift of prophecy is. It's about faithfulness to God's word while speaking biblical truth to those around us. And if this is the gift of prophecy, if that is accurate, then I wanna have that gift every time I open up God's word and teach it to be able to be faithful to God's truth and to communicate it to those around me. And obviously, if this again rightly defines what the gift of prophecy is, then this should not be a divisive gift. It should be a unifying gift. The gift of prophecy should be one that is actually pushing the church of Christ forward on mission, holding on to God's truth. Paul says to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. And so that's a little bit about the gift of prophecy. But what about, what about tongues? What about the spiritual gift of tongues? We need to remember again that 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and those first few verses, it's all about love, pursuing love and encouragement. When we use our spiritual gifts, any of them, they need to have a heart and a motivation of love. And so we see that in these spiritual gifts, like tongues, they can divide us if we are not careful, if we think wrongly, if we don't have love as a motivation and we can be disobedient to God if love is not at the center. We can, honestly, we can not honor God. We can not build one another up as brothers and sisters in Christ when we forget to have love at the center of it all. And this is what makes 1 Corinthians 14 so sad because both in the first century and the 21st century, if we are not careful, we can allow tongues to be a divisive issue when it does not need to be. The Corinthian church was overemphasizing a lower gift and they were elevating tongues to be a higher gift. So Paul offers many additional insights to the Corinthians and for us as well into the gift of tongues. And, and these are important. And so we see that in Corinth, in first century Corinth, tongues seem to be very prominent, even more so than any of the other churches recorded in the New Testament. And unfortunately, it was bringing confusion. It was bringing about disunity. And so we see that Paul is comparing then the public usage of tongues without interpretation to something like a band with a flute and a harp and a bugle and that they're all playing in a confusing fashion. And that is how tongues can be 
when there is no interpretation in a public worship setting. And, and Paul's illustration here of musical instruments makes me think about a Christmas several years ago before my wife and I had kids. I remember getting some Christmas gifts for my young nieces and nephews. And I remember going to the store trying to find them the perfect gift. And what I ended up deciding on to be the uncle of the year was to get them these kid version musical instruments, like a drum set and tambourines and whistles and flutes and all of those different types of musical instruments. And I thought it would be absolutely fantastic and that they would love them. And that is definitely true. But what I ended up seeing was that as they opened up these presents and they got them out of the packaging and they started to play on all of these instruments, they were strumming the guitar, they were playing these different flutes and whistles and they were doing all of the different instruments. I was surprised to find out that they were not playing in unison. Actually, I wasn't surprised at all. I just wasn't expecting the sound to be so deafening to my ears as my nieces and nephews are playing these different instruments. I remember that my my brother looked at me and he said, thank you so much for bringing so much peace and joy to our household this Christmas day. And I'll never forget that as my nieces and nephews tried to play all those instruments, They weren't playing to the same sheet of music. They weren't trying to do it in unison. They weren't playing things in the same key. They were all over the place and it was a confusing amount of music to take in. And this is kind of what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying that everyone has a sheet of music, but everyone's sheet of music is a different piece. It's from a different composer in a different timing and in a different key. And it doesn't sound soothing, it doesn't sound edifying, and it's not instructive. The musicians are not playing in concert, and as a result, there ends up being chaos because there's not unity and direction in what is happening. And this is what the usage of public tongues can be like unless there is a designated interpreter with the gift of interpretation who's present and who's actively using their spiritual gift of interpretation. And so that's why we see Paul write in verse 11 of chapter 14. He says, But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. And so without a known designated interpreter, there should not be public usage of tongues. Paul goes on to say that even with an interpreter, there are actual better ways to use the public worship service for the body of Christ. One important goal of public worship is for the building up of the church. I love what verse 12 says, that it says we should excel in building up the church. May that be our goal, to excel in building up the church. So even though Paul is not outright forbidding the usage of public tongues, Paul is saying that there should be a focus on knowledge. There should be a focus on prophecy. There should be a focus on teaching of God's word and that this is a better usage of public worship rather than public tongues through interpretation. And so we see 
that Paul then adds in verse 13 that the gift of tongues, if it is publicly utilized in worship, it does require interpretation. That's what Paul says. Verse 28 reads this, but if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So if any of us have ever been in a worship service before where a number of participants are suddenly speaking in words that are unintelligible, and no, I'm not hopefully speaking about any of my sermons, but this is a situation that would not be keeping in step with scripture. There should be order, Paul is saying. There should be instruction and direction so that it doesn't produce division and confusion. Paul further states in verses 14 to 19 that while tongues were permissible in Corinth, publicly using them would be less fruitful than studied teaching of God's inspired and inerrant word. In verse 18, Paul says though, that I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. You see, Paul was not against tongues. He spoke in tongues himself. He was not a first century cessationist, but he was actually one that spoke in tongues himself. He was not anti-tongues. However, when it came to a public worship setting of the local church, God led Paul to write this in verse 19, following the verse we just read. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And so even in the first century, before the completion of the 66 books of the Bible, the canon was completed. Even then, Paul was saying that our worship services publicly should focus in on the teaching, the studying of God's truth, his word, rather than the utilization of public tongues. And so Paul is painting a strong picture here. He says that a five-word sermon would be superior to 10,000 words spoken in a tongue. That's a strong picture, a hyperbole of what he is trying to communicate. It's a strong picture. The teaching section of public worship is for preaching the word. Going on, Paul adds that if we choose to utilize public tongues in a corporate worship setting and unbelievers happen to be present— that we actually might end up confusing those that are there rather than building them up. Rather than tongues drawing unbelievers to the Lord, they would maybe even look at those who are in that church setting and they would say, this is a confusing experience and they don't get edified. Listen to verses 23 to 24. It says this, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. And so whether you believe that the normative public usage of tongues ended when the canon was complete, the 66 books of the Bible, whether you believe that that to be true, which would be the view that I would hold as well, 
or if you believe that the gift of tongues is still active today, either way, it's just clear from Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 that utilizing tongues in corporate worship services is not Paul's first recommendation. Paul even says as far to say five-word sermons would be better and superior than 10,000 words in a tongue. Give us five words of Pastor Dave's sermon than 10,000 words in a tongue. Finally, if public tongues are used in a worship service, then tongues must spiritually build up the assembled congregation. It's all about building up the church, bringing honor to the Lord. One clear goal for public worship is that all things are to be done for the building up of brothers and sisters in Christ. And so in our setting here as Highland Community Church, the public usage of tongues would not end up building up followers of Christ, but it would rather, it would be divisive. It would not be unifying and therefore it would not be honoring to the Lord. Our gifts should bring unification. It should be edification. It should build up brothers and sisters in Christ. So what do we do with this passage? How do we take what we've seen in 1 Corinthians 14 and apply it to our own lives? I want to suggest three ways that we could apply God's word to our own lives today. First, If you are a follower of Christ, if you are a Christ follower, then at conversion, God gave you, he gifted you with one or more spiritual gifts and you are called to use them. First Timothy chapter four, verse 14 says very clearly, do not neglect the gift that you have. Don't neglect it, use it. We need to use our spiritual gifts to serve the church. And when we do that, it brings honor to God and it builds up others around us. And so maybe if God has gifted you musically, maybe you can use that gift in Highlands worship ministry team. Or perhaps you have the gift of hospitality and you should serve as a greeter or an usher or a barista or a host of a connection group or a mops table. Or maybe you have the gift of knowledge or wisdom, teaching, exhortation, or prophecy, and you should find ways to teach, maybe in One Way Club, or in Generation 180, or a care group, or a Bible study, or a Sunday school class. Or perhaps you have the gift of evangelism, and all believers are called to evangelize. We're all called to share the gospel, but maybe God has gifted you, especially with the gift of evangelism, And you are called in your ministry to share the good news of Jesus with others, inviting them to church. May you use your spiritual gift of evangelism. Or perhaps you have the spiritual gift of giving and and generosity. And again, all believers are called to be sacrificial givers, to be selfless with what we have, to be cheerful givers. But perhaps God has gifted you in such a way that you can excel in giving And you can liberally share what the Lord has entrusted to you. Or perhaps you have the spiritual gift of mercy. So maybe sending cards of encouragement. Maybe making phone calls to those who are lonely. Maybe caring for those who are in need in a multitude of scenarios is a way that you can use and exercise 
your spiritual gift. Maybe it's the spiritual gift of service and helps. And you can find different ways of serving in the local church here at Highland. Maybe it's cleaning up chairs after the service or shoveling snow off of the walkways, keeping our facilities running in a way where it allows ministry to take place. Whatever your gifts might be, God has gifted you with one or more spiritual gifts. We're called to use those. How will you use your spiritual gifts? I think a second way that we need to be thinking about how we apply this passage to our lives is that we need to realize that gifts are always utilized with a spirit of love. And so as we use our gift of discernment, as we use our gift of teaching or service or helps, as we use our gift of evangelism, it always needs to come out of a pursuit of love, always. We always need to be having that motivation. Love must dominate through and through as we use and exercise our spiritual gifts. If we are going to build others up, if we are going to honor the Lord in the way that we use our spiritual gifts, that cannot be done unless love is our motivation. Paul says, pursue love. And I think a final way that we can apply these truths to our lives is that we need to realize that gifts are to be used in a manner that will not cause division. We should not be seeking out as we use our gifts to cause division, but rather unity and encouragement. And some gifts like the public usage of tongues would cause division in a church like Highland. And while we may have different views over whether we think that the gift of tongues, the public gift of tongues is still operative today or not, it is clear that it would be a divisive thing for our church family to practice the public gift of tongues. And besides, we see that Paul is very clear. He says that it's wiser to speak five words with our minds in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let's aim for unity. Let's aim for unity as we use our gifts, as we have a motivation of love in our spiritual gifts. Let's aim for unity. What might be your next step? How is God leading you today from his word? How might each of us, myself included, take another step in our relationship with Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters in Christ, may we be a church that lovingly uses our gifts for God's glory, for his glory, for his purposes, and for the building up of the brothers and sisters in Christ. May that be our goal. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today that we were able to look at and study. And Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment of how you're calling each of us as followers in Christ to use and exercise the gifts that you have given us. Father, help us to have a motivation of love as we use our spiritual gifts. Help us to actively exercise our spiritual gifts, not to neglect them, but to 
pursue using them. And Father, may we seek to use our gifts in such a way that we would be more and more and more unified as brothers and sisters in the Lord. So Father, as we go from here, I pray that you would guide us by your spirit. I pray that we would actively apply the truth that we see in your word. We love you, Father, and we pray all these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.